Hey guys, and welcome back to The Curious Curators. I'm Hope. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are going to have our last podcast of Black History Month. We have one more podcast for Black History Month for you. And today we are going to talk about some African kingdoms. Yeah. Um, I and think empires. Africa has such a long history. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look up lists of African kingdoms and empires, there are hundreds. Oh, yeah. Like, so we've only picked, like, six. But we could... Because we just do not have enough time in the day, in the week, in the year to learn about all of them. We could probably have a full podcast where we just read off names. Oh, yeah. We could go for 30 minutes reading off names. Yeah, like, it's very a very long history, a very rich history. And I think that it's one that we don't always hear about. No, absolutely not. Um, Africa has such a rich history. There's so many archaeological sites and digs happening in Africa mm-hmm. right this minute. And I think that we just don't we don't hear about them as much. I think a lot of the ancient civilizations that you hear about are going to be Egypt, Rome, and Greece. Yeah, we definitely have. Uh, and these aren't even, not all of them are ancient. No, um, we have more modern. We did add more modern ones as well. Yeah, I think we picked one from different. Yeah. We each have one from different a different period, but one of the things that you know our our schooling in America is very Eurocentric, very much, um, so. and we learn about all those kingdoms and empires, uh, but we don't learn a lot about, a lot about African kingdoms and empires. And then what I end up seeing a lot of is people trying to like. There's this huge argument about whether Egypt was black or white. Um, because Hollywood whitewashes it, but people are saying, you know, it's African, so they're black African. They're sub-Saharan African, but actually they're more closely related to the Bedouins. Um, Well, and then some, um, when Alexander the Great's um, army came in and everything, they were Macedonian Greek. Right, they were. But that that was much later. The the Ptolemies were later, and, um, you know, because Cleopatra was white. She was Greek. Yes, she was. Um, she the was famous Greek. Cleopatra. There are some previous Cleopatra. She was the seventh Cleopatra. Yeah. So, but she was she was a Ptolemaic pharaoh, and she was white, or if you call Greek white, uh, a little bit more tan, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, these modern days Greek is considered white, but in the past in America, you look at the 1920s, they probably would have not called them white. Just interesting how racial categories are ever moving goalposts. Um, But my biggest thing is a lot of, I think this feeling of trying to claim Egypt as a black civilization comes from the feeling of a missing history because they, the only thing they do teach about is Egypt, but you have all of these other kingdoms and empires in Africa that were black. They were sub-Saharan African. Africa is huge. Yeah. Like it might look small in a map in comparison to like that's because you have Eurasian, to stretch out the poles. Yeah, but like your Eurasian continent looks large. Africa is huge. Yeah. Like, so it's, and it's, it's a misconception that Africa is very small. Yeah, and it's uh, the oldest inhabited. Yeah. Like the longest the inhabited. The cradle of civilization, basically. Yes. Like, it, it's been around. People came from Africa. And it's, it's got such a long history. And... Looking at it, it is extremely frustrating that that is not something that you learn in school. Especially in American schools. Maybe you'll talk about the Middle East, like, this much. And then Egypt, Greece, Rome, we're done. 
that's well, more, and if that's we talk about history. later empires, it's always European empires. So maybe you'll get a little Empire. bit of China. Um, I don't remember ever learning about China. We had world civilizations, so we did learn about China. Um, I cut, I remember world civilizations, but that was a long time. India, a, long a little time. bit. Um, so. You know, I, I feel like in America, we focus on our European identity instead of our African identity. Really? Not that, don't look at me and think, oh, she's claiming African identity. But America has a mixed heritage. Yes. And there are African identities as well as European identities here. Um, and like I said, I think that trying to claim Egypt as black is a feeling of missing heritage. And, you know, and I... I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong because Hollywood has claimed Egypt as white since the beginning of time. Elizabeth Taylor. Well, that was correct because she played Cleopatra. Cleopatra was Greek. Um, but I'm talking about the most recent movie like of gods and men or of gods and or, kings um, or something. What was it? 10,000 BC as well when they were in like that Egypt-esque place, but like everyone around them was white. Yeah. 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 Ah. So... I, I think it's important to highlight some of these cultures and not only not only are the cultures we highlight we are highlighting um, I feel like some of them are way more interesting than anything we learned about and more advanced than Egypt I don't think I don't think Egypt is the end-all be-all of African civilizations which is why we didn't study we didn't do Egypt no, we didn't do. Well, the only time we're going to talk about Egypt is, like, in passing. I, I think, think all of ours are sub-Saharan African yeah. empires. Get Cape of Africa. I have one from, like, the, the Horn of Africa. Well, sub-Saharan yeah. is... The whole... Sub-Saharan is everything south of the Sahara. Oh, okay. Sub... Um, so I have... Um, <laughs> I think I have one that's partially in the Saharan Desert. Um, and you do, too. Um... But if, if you're ever interested, because there's a lot of um, this idea of, like, superiority as well when you think about it. It's like, oh, white people had empires and African, Africans didn't. Like, Europe, Europe had empires and Africa was just colonized and exploited. And I'm not saying it wasn't colonized and exploited, but they had empires as but well. But they have a much longer history than Europe does. Yeah. Um, and like Lindsay said, some of the stuff that we talked about is just so interesting. And... One thing that I thought was really cool doing this research is they're still actively doing archaeological digs in Africa. And in the first, like my first one, um, they are actively doing that dig and finding out so much more, like from the 1920s upon discovery until right, like now. So, 100 years, they have completely changed what they thought this place yeah. was. And that's so interesting to me how, like, you look at a place and you're like, well, it must be this. Only to find out that you could not have been more wrong. Yeah. And it's it's so cool to, to learn about it. And I don't understand why when you get notifications about, like, archaeology and everything else, it's always in, it's always in Europe. Sometimes it's in South America. Sorry, I'm like... We'll go with... So... I will say, you know, there's a lot of emphasis. Sorry, I can't sit in one position for too long. I can. Um, um, one of the things, too, is uh, something that I found interesting is the most advanced astronomical 
calculations at the time were actually done in the Saharan Desert in Nubia, essentially. Okay. I can't remember if they were the Nabataean or the Nabtaplea because I was reading about these two groups that sounded exactly the same. I didn't write notes on these, but I was reading about these two different groups at the same time. But they were, they had, there's like stone monuments in the Saharan Desert. And they think a lot of their culture was lost to the desert. Um, Mm. But it's like the earliest astronomical structures in known existence. So, you know what? It starts early. It really does. Um, All right. Well, I'll start with Kerma. It's probably going to be slightly out of order, but that's fine. Well, Kerma is definitely the oldest. Yeah. So, Kerma, of ours that we researched. So, this is the kingdom of Kerma, um, and it is an early civilization in Kerma, Sudan. So, there's actually still a town there called Kerma. And for those of you who are not geographically inclined, Sudan is south of Egypt. Yes. the It's all part of the Nile Valley. Yes. Um, so, this was from about 2500 BCE to about 1500 BCE. Um, this is in ancient Nubia. So Nubia um, is no longer a country, right? right? It's it's Nubia is kind of a region. region. It like um, it's like the South Nile essentially. Yeah. So it's one of the it's one of the Nile Valley states, um, and it kind of fluctuated and grew like different times. So in its latest phase, so about seventeen hundred BCE to fifteen hundred BCE. Um, Let's all remember that BCE moves backwards, or opposite. Like, you go from big to small. Here I am, acting like everybody's an idiot. (laughs) So it absorbed the Sudanese kingdom of Sai, and it grew into an empire rivaling Egypt. Yeah. So this was not just, like, a small little... They were Egypt's, like, rivals. But around 1500, it ended up being absorbed into the new kingdom of Egypt. This is 1500 BCE. But then the kingdom of Kush would emerge in the 11th century BCE. Yes. Um, and they would regain the region's independence. But we're thinking Kerma began to rival Egypt, and it was the first of the sub-Saharan African countries or empires that were able to rival Egypt. And there's, like, a history of Egyptian military activity. I assume they have found things on digs and whatnot, um, from Egypt, and it's in Lower Nubia, and they're thinking this shows that they thought that Egypt thought that Kerma was a threat. Okay. Um, they also built, like, fortifications in the Middle Nile Valley. Egypt did. Um, and they're thinking these were either to secure Egypt from raids by Kerma or to protect the trade routes because there were a lot of trade routes because Kerma had a lot of enviable resources. Mm-hmm. So we're talking gold, ivory, Gold, ivory, ebony, cattle, milk, incense, they had everything, and Egypt was super jealous. They also had an army that was built around archers. Okay. So I think that's so interesting that their entire army was built around archers, and do you remember when we were talking about, like, the Greek army and whatnot, um, archers were seen as cowardly. Yeah. But their whole army is built around archers. And I would rather be an archer. Get see, you from a distance. I think archery is fun. Yeah. Um. So at some point, Kerma formed a partnership with the Hyksis, um, I'm so sorry, in order to like basically take down Egypt. And there were discoveries at the governor of El Kab's tomb. 
So in these show that between 1575 and 1550 BCE, karma was extremely deep into Egypt and possibly left victorious because they have found in karma like Egyptian statues and monuments that mm-hmm. were moved there. So that's like a sign of like, we won because we're taking your stuff. And that's something we also know from the succeeding culture, which also did the same thing. Yeah, so Egypt seems like, I think Egypt is made out to be this, like, unbeatable superpower, but they weren't. Um, But Kerma was basically destroyed and then sort of annexed um, under Tutmos I. And they are still excavated. So Kerma is the civilization that I was talking about that was still being excavated. Um, There's a lot that we don't know. A lot. So we do not know what language they spoke in Kerma, um, which leads me to believe I couldn't really find any information on it. Leads me to believe they didn't have like a fully written language. Because if they did we would have an idea. We could say like something. But um it's been proposed it's either Nilo Saharan or Afro Asiatic. Okay. So it could be they're guessing. It could be anything. Um but Kerma, the site itself, was first found in the 1920s. It was found by George Andrew Reisner. He's an American archaeologist. Um, And Reisner thought that it was like a fort or like a base or something, like an outpost um, that would have a military governor and that those military governors would end up becoming the monarchs of Kerma. I will say I have to give a little bit of props to Mr. Reisner because he didn't use dynamite to do anything. Um, in Kerma. Low bar in early archaeological work. Yeah, so like he at least didn't destroy the entirety of an ancient civilization. But then like in later years, decades later, someone came behind him and they were like this was probably a trading post. For what? There was nothing else there. Like what do you mean? Because they were like it couldn't be a base. It's really far from Egypt. But in the last 10 or 15 years they've really been excavating more. So they're uncovering all this stuff and they're like this is a really big really complex city and they've also found that it has its own like material culture and its own um burial culture so they build things called tumuli i guess that's how you pronounce it but it's like they're burial mounds yeah um and they have found like fossils and stuff i don't fully understand what i was reading about this i, I did like kind of write it down but apparently they can test fossils for craniometric and dental trait analysis. I assume this is something that you would know about. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it down because I was like, I don't really know, but that's fine. And it shows that the people of Kerma have similarities to various other groups of people living in the Nile Valley, the Horn of Africa, and Northeast Africa. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I would assume that the craniometry would have to do with... Um, their skulls looking similar to those people who lived in that area. And the dental analysis is usually an analysis of diet, as far as I understand. Yeah, so I don't um, know how they can do that with, like, fossils. Well, Maybe yeah, teeth well, they're last. also... I don't know. Um, teeth are shaped different um, in different races, essentially. Are they really? Yeah, so um, Asians have different shaped teeth than Europeans. Um, and there, there are typologies that I think might be somewhat defunct, but it was uh, negroid, mongoloid, and caucasoid skull shapes. I've seen that before. Um, I think that's a little bit defunct, but I think craniometry has kind of advanced beyond that. But your teeth are shaped different That's in, within different groups of people. Now, it's not 
I'm not saying like all it's it's kind of like blood types are more prominent in certain groups. Oh, okay, so it's okay. So I I wrote that down because I figured you were gonna know something about it with like your archaeology studies and everything. So I was like, I'll just ask this question. But yeah, so they're similar to other people from different parts of Africa. Okay. So. And that's kind of what I have on Kerma. I didn't find any, like, juicy gossip or anything, but I can only assume that that's because they're... So old and they're being newly discovered. And they're, yeah, they're still excavating. They don't know. So in five years or five months... We we might have have, some juicy gossip. Yeah. We could have some very interesting stories coming out of Kerma. So um, the Kush were actually the successors of the Kerma. Kush, I think that was actually what the Egyptians named them. Um, Yeah, they were called... Uh, Kush by the Egyptians. Um, so basically, we end the Kerma culture with Egypt annexing Nubia and the Kerma um, around 1500. And they actually continued to rebel against Egypt for the next 200 years. Um, and they eventually did get their own independence. They were called Kush as a region of Egypt, and that's what we call them as a civilization today. I couldn't find what they called themselves. Um, I think they're still trying to decipher the language that they used. I wonder if that's the same language that they would have used in Kerma. I'm not sure. It says they developed their own writing system. Um, But it was ruled as an Egyptian colony with an Egyptian viceroy. Um, They were also archers, just like the Kerma before them. And they actually did emerge as an independent kingdom in 1070. Um, but they they did absorb a lot of Egyptian culture after being an Egyptian colony. Like they took on Egyptian deities as objects of worship as well, um, and a lot of their customs as well. They also started be- building pyramids um, instead of the tumuli. Yeah, and I'm making the shape with my hands. <laughs> Get away. And they basically began to chip away at Egyptian holdings and starting to take colonize Egypt. Um, one of the kings said it was because Amun had granted me to be the ruler of every foreign country. And so he had a right to Egypt. That's a fantastic way to, like, say, I'm just going to do this. Yeah, so, um, and, and basically these Nubian pharaohs, because um, they did follow that pharaonic uh, Egyptian model. These Nubian pharaohs actually ended up, as they moved into Egypt, making Egypt better. They restored a lot of Egyptian structures um, and they created their own pyramids and they developed their own script that was used by the royal court and the major temples within the empire. And their their capital was in Meroe, which is in Sudan today. Um, They had a war with Assyria over control of Egypt um, and they managed to hold on to Upper Egypt. So the Kush were able to take Upper Egypt Um, Lower Egypt being the south, Upper Egypt being northern Egypt, um, and important places like Thebes and Memphis. Um, And they were able to take these places, but they did have to go to war with Assyria over who held Egypt at that time. They had to go to war. Well, they wanted Egypt, and Assyria wanted Egypt as well. Um, But they held on to it about until about 1590. And then they fell back. The Persians may have also invaded Kush. We're not sure. That's something they're still exploring, apparently. Persia was invading everybody. Persia was invading everybody, yes. Um, 
And they eventually moved their capital and the Ptolemies took over in Egypt after Alexander. And Alexander invaded Egypt, gave it to the Ptolemies, which were a Greek family. One um, of his generals or something. Yeah. And so apparently the Cushites and the Ptolemies didn't really have any conflicts. They kept their borders. They weren't they weren't messing with each other. Right. Um, it wasn't until um, Rome came along and took over Egypt. They originally negotiated boundaries with Rome um, and acted as a client kingdom of both the Ptolemies and Rome to follow. Uh, but basically, and this might sound familiar to Americans, Roman taxation became too much and for this client of Rome and they revolted and they they uh, sacked the Roman border town of Aswan which is where the boundary was drawn between the two kingdoms um, and around this time there was a queen that Greek I think it was Greek and Roman writers mistakenly called Candace her title was Kandake um, Candace that that like real African name and that was a title. That wasn't even her name. Her name was Amani Renes, uh, or Amani Renas. She lived. She ruled from about forty to ten uh, BCE. She was a ruling queen. She was the sister of the pharaoh. Um, and in their pharaonic structure, it was actually matriarchal. So the sister would bear the next pharaoh, not the pharaoh. So the sister of the pharaoh would bear the next pharaoh. Okay. Oh, yeah, you were telling me about that. So strange to me. And she was referred to by Strabo as a fierce, one-eyed queen, Candace. Um, she she apparently was blind in one eye. I don't I know. I also just love that the Greeks and stuff were like, yeah, we'll just call her Candace. Candace. <laughs> Seems good. Um, and she basically sacked a series of Roman forts. Obviously not on her own. She sent her armies to sack. <laughs> she personally went. She probably went. She she was pretty cool. And she actually decapitated a bronze statue of Augustus, the Roman emperor. Um, and then she buried it beneath the steps of a temple that in her capital of Meroe, uh, and the temple was a temple dedicated to victory. So this is kind of following the Kerma culture where they would steal it. And then bury it. And but she really buried Augustus it under the steps. Boyfriend, so I'm hurt. Um, and it was actually, it was actually found. They found this sculpture later, um, in 1912, and guess where it is today? The British Museum. The British Museum. Everything is in the British Museum. Because, you know, Sudan couldn't use, couldn't use their cultural items today. I'm actually pretty sure that there is a museum in Sudan that has the artifacts from Kerma for sure, and possibly from Kush as well. Probably because they found it later. Yeah, but like, they... That is, once again, us letting you know that people real build shady. museums. And you could p give them their things back to put in their wow. museums that they built. Imagine the Sudanese having their cultural historical items. Well, and it looked really, I saw a couple of pictures of it, and it looked really cool. Like, I would go there. Um, and basically, after this time, the Romans pushed back against the Kushites, um, and so they kind of had this back and forth until um, they finally kind of went to the table and negotiations were opened. Um, the Kush got all of their land back that they wanted, and they didn't have to pay taxes to the Romans. Uh, but the Romans occupied a military border zone of about 12 miles, 
and the Kush weren't allowed to cross it again. Um, and the relations were peaceful for the next few hundred years. Um, but the Kushite Empire began to dissolve under internal rebellion and the spread of Christianity. Um, but, and, and so those, because it, the, their pharaonic dynasties were so entrenched in Egyptian deities, the conversion to Christianity kind of tore them apart. Tore apart the legitimacy of the ruling class. Whereas um, Rome just converted. But I mean, but I think that probably happened a lot when Christianity became a religion. Um, but the Kushites actually developed uh, several different technologies. They developed something called a sakya, which is a water lifting device that uses animal power. It's ironically called the Persian wheel. Because we can't... Uh, we can't give credit where credit is due. Right. And they also invented a certain type of water reservoir. Um, and also, they used tetracycline as an antibiotic. Oh, so they, I mean, they had antibiotics. Yes, and it was, it was believed that um, because they could foster it while they created beer. Okay. Um, they didn't necessarily say, here's a prescription for tetracycline, but they realized that certain diseases would go away if you drank this beer. Oh. So there's something in this beer. That's really cool. That's smart. So it was basically, here's a beer. And how You're long, sick, here's a beer. How long later was it that they discovered that penicillin came from moldy bread? 20th century. Yeah. So. so, And they also developed their own, like, they developed a system of geometry and all kinds of things as well. Um, mathematicians, man. Mathematicians. Too much math today. They're for real. So they actually had a pretty interesting legacy they had to leave a, behind. a very, like, developed culture. Yes, they did. Like, extremely developed. Like, they were having antibiotics while everybody else was just, like, dying when they cut their hand open. Yeah, and they fell apart around 350 CE, so CE. after. Okay. Okay, so the next one that I have is the Kingdom of Aksum. And this was an ancient kingdom centered in northern Ethiopia and parts of what is now Eritrea. Is that what it is? Is that how you say that? What are you talking about? E-R-I-T-R-E-A. Oh, yeah. Eritrea. So it existed from approximately 80 BC or s to 825. For those less geographically inclined, this is East Africa. Did you hear that? Yeah, that's kind of worrying. <laughs> it's fine. So this grew, this city, grew from the proto-Aksumite Iron Age period. I was like, I'm going to sound so smart when I say this. So it became a major plager in the commercial route between the Roman Empire and ancient India. A major plager? Major plager. <laughs> <laughs> we have recorded a lot of these today. Yes, we have. But so, so between the Roman Empire and ancient India, I think it's really interesting just to see how far Rome's reach went as well. Like, they was everywhere. Um, so the rulers facilitated trade. They minted their own currency. I always love it when people are just like, we can make our own currency here. Especially because I think coins are found so often. Yes. And it's so interesting to see what coins look like from different places and things like that. So this, it, 
I've read that they wrote that they had they established their hegemony is that the right word over the declining kingdom of Kush. Um, and they were quite like political. They entered politics all over the Arabian Peninsula, and they eventually like extended their rule all over this region. And um, there was a prophet. He was called Mani, Mani Mani. Um, he died in two seventy four, and he regarded us Askum. Oxum. I have so many issues. I just Oxum like to say it dramatically. As one of the four great powers of his time. Okay. The others were Persia, Rome, and China. Okay. And it basically ruled the South Arabia of Yemen for half a century in the 6th century. And one thing, they erected steely, steely, mm-hmm. steely, steely. Um, and these were, of course, religious in pre-Christian times, as we know. And one of their columns is the largest in the world. Okay. And it's 90 feet tall. But um, they ended up adopting Christianity somewhere between 320 and 360. Okay. So around the same time that the Kushites did, because they ended around yeah. 350, and one of the reasons was the spread of Christianity. And this was under Izana. Okay. That they did all the Christianity. So if you can see my pages of notes, you're probably like, oh my God, she wrote so much. They did the Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> but what I did was um, I have so much information just that's unnecessary. So the town, Aksum, um, is now a town in northern Ethiopia. So I always love it when they keep their names because I'm like, yes. So they actually used the name Ethiopia as early as the 4th century. Okay. And tradition claims that this is the... Okay, so I have... I'm so interested in this. Um, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. That That's the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. So if you don't know, there is this... So Indy was digging in the wrong place. But Josh Gates wasn't. If you know about the Ark of the Covenant um, and, like, just the history of where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be, there is a church in Ethiopia, and there's only, like, one priest allowed inside. You can stand outside of the church. Well, I mean, it makes sense because your skin would melt off if you looked at it. But this... But they won't actually let anyone see inside the church. But they there's, like, guards and everything, so they guard this church. And I've watched, like, multiple TV shows about this. I think it is so interesting. But apparently the Ark of the Covenant is inside of this church, but they can't prove it. How are they going to prove it? Because they can't go inside. And most recently I watched Josh Gates go in here, and they wouldn't even speak to him. Yeah. Like, they just made him stand outside under a tree. And they were like, they're not going to talk to you. Anyway, I think that's... So the Ark of the Covenant is in the former kingdom of Aksum, possibly, um, in Ethiopia. Like I said, you can't see that church. I did not write down the name of it because I was like, I'm going to remember this. Here we are yeah. with me not remembering. Um, so there, the language, of course, um, their thinking is Afro-Asiatic, um, Evidence suggests that the somatic speaking Askumites 
um, they originally spoke like Afroasiatic languages because they're thinking this just basically because of who founded it, I think. Um, the language thing kind of confuses me just slightly because I, like, I don't, I don't know like how you look at something that's written or something like that and you're like, this is this. You know what I mean? Especially like cuneiform, for instance. Right. Like, how did you name, you know what I mean? Like, how did you know what that is if there's nothing from it so um i did write down just a little bit about the language but then when i explain it i'm like i don't actually know so i do apologize for that um linguistics is not my my forte anyway they were a trading empire and i actually when i was doing my research i found out that there is a book called the book of aksum which which sounds like something from the mummy it does and it's so interesting so okay so it kind of tells the history of Aksum. The first capital is called Mazabar. It was built in, built by Aetopis, a son of Cush. And then the capital was made, later moved to Aksum. You're going to have all of these people haunting you because you can't pronounce any of the I names. I really can't. I'm so bad at... Guys, I am so bad. My Spanish teacher despaired. My Latin teacher despaired. I sound, no, no, no. So, basically, this was just a very large kingdom, and, hold on. Sorry, I threw you off. No, it's fine. I have no idea. So, what was that? I was going to mention King Caleb, who I think was, he appointed a Christian to work in his, King Caleb with a K, K K-A-L-E-B. So, he like, sent um, an expedition to Yemen against a Jewish king. But later, he actually appointed a Christian um, as his, like, viceroy, which I think is really interesting. This was before they were Christians, or I think maybe before or after. Um, Anyway, I just have, like, so much information that is not really necessary. Um, Okay, anyway. So, the empire began to decline in the mid-6th century. It had a second golden age just before that. Okay. But then it started to decline again, and it even ceased production of coins in the early 7th century, which I assume means that that... I assume if you stop producing money, that really means that, you know, you're empire or your country or whatever is going down because Uh, we've got enough money out there it's fine we won't make any more but at the same time the population was forced to go further inland for protection um and then they abandoned aksum and arab writers of the time continued to describe ethiopia which they started calling it ethiopia they no longer call it aksum um as a very powerful state Though they lost their control of the coast and all of the tributaries and everything. So I'm just assuming they just moved inland and their power moved inland. Um, but Ethiopia was really no longer an economic power, but it still attracted merchants and everything. Like, people were still coming. Just, I guess, not in as great of numbers. And they currently do not know where the capital moved to. Like, they haven't found it yet. Okay. I always love that, like, the mystery of it. Like, where did it go? Yeah. You know, like, you have to have some idea if you know that the civilization lasted. What do you mean? Um, and local history holds that around 960, a Jewish queen called Yodit or Judith um, defeated the empire and burned all of its churches and its literature, which could be why we don't know a lot of things because it okay. was all lost. 
And while there is evidence of churches being burned in an invasion, her existence has been questioned by Western authors. You know, Western authors always question if a, there is a warrior queen. Um, another theory is that um, their power was ended by a southern pagan queen named Bonnie al-Hamwaiha, possibly of the tribe al-Demuta or Demoti. But basically, a woman was what brought this kingdom down. Wow. A woman that was in charge. So there was a dark age. You know, I love me a dark age. Um, but the empire was kind of left and was seceded by the Agazwage dynasty in the 11th to 12th century. But one thing that people think might have happened was dramatic climate change mm -hmm. um, and trade isolation as trade routes changed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, they think that's probably why the, the like kingdom started to fall. Um, climate change can cause your food to become scarce or you're mm -hmm. unable to find it. And I think that, that they think that's probably the main reason but they did end up having their own alphabet, though if we have their alphabet, I don't know how we don't know what language they spoke. Um, Maybe it's not deciphered yet? It's called the Gaeas script, Gaeas okay. script, um, which was eventually modified to include vowels, but whatever. Um, they also made obelisks to mark emperors and nobles' tombs, and the obelisk of Axum is like the most famous of these. And they used to have a polytheistic region, or religion, clearly Christianity came. And this gave way to the present day Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church. Uh, our next empire is the Songhe Empire. Um, it's one of the largest empires in African history. Um, kind of rivaled by the Mali Empire, which was in the same area around the same time. Um, so the Songhai was established around 1000 um, at Gao, which would become its capital in the Mali Empire. And um, Mali captured Gao in the late 1200s. And the Songhai recaptured Gao about 100 years later when the Mali Empire was disintegrating. So the Mali Empire was from about 1235 to 670 or 1670 CE. Um, Did anyone tell them that those dates aren't real because the Dark Ages? The or? Phantom Time, time <laughs> Hypothesis. Um, and, and really their, their height was between 1389 and 1545. Um, but they started to get more and more obscure lineages ruling the Mali, and they started to fall apart and eventually started losing land, um, land area to the Song Hei Empire, which was a neighboring empire and a, a growing empire around the same time. Uh, their first emperor, official emperor of the Song Hei Empire, was Sunni Ali. And he started basically picking apart pieces of Mali and absorbing them into his empire of Songhai. Um, he was, so Sunni Ali was a Muslim and he actually invaded 
Timbuktu, which is something that's familiar to all of us. So this is taking place in West Africa and because Timbuktu is in Morocco. And it's my dream to go to Morocco. He heard from the people there that there was a Tuareg, which is a nomadic Berber culture um, in North Africa. The two, there were Tuareg raiders um, who took over Timbuktu after Mali kind of pulled apart and lost power in Timbuktu. Okay. Um, and he basically came in, they're like, please help us. Um, they were Muslim citizens. He was a Muslim leader who was growing in power and they said, please help us. But he basically burned and destroyed Timbuktu, um, tortured its citizens, um, and basically repressed any Tuareg scholarship that was happening in Timbuktu. Um, and basically repressed any of them as a people. Um, he also conducted a seven-year siege on a wealthy trading town called uh, Dejene, and basically starved the people into surrender. Mm. Um, and he is, he is still renowned as a powerful politician and a great military commander, but definitely not a nice guy. No, he doesn't sound like a very nice guy. But he's the one who basically started mm. this empire, and I guess you don't start empires with niceness. Yeah, people don't just flock to you because you're kind. Yes, you don't gain land and cities. By being kind, yeah. With kindness. Um, his son only reigned for a year before he was overthrown by a man called Oxia the Great. Um, hmm. He actually had no claim to the throne. He was not related to Sunni Ali in any way. Okay. Um, but he took a sort of different approach. First, he built a professional army um, like the Romans. Instead of just turning people into soldiers, he had, professional, uh, he had a professional military. Um, he was also very religious, and so he would build mosques, he would build schools, he would build astronomical observatories. Um, he was very pro-knowledge and education and the advancement of okay. those things. And despite being religious, um, he did not believe in forcible conversion. He was, he was also Muslim. Um, but he would bring in scholars from all over the Islamic world trying to make the Songhe culture and the Song, well, the Songhe empire more cosmopolitan. Okay. He wanted all the great minds there. He was saying, hey, check out Timbuktu, check out Dejene. These places are the next up and coming hub of Islamic intellectualism. Um, and he w made alliances with a lot of these other uh, empires as well. Um, he created a justice system. He uh, started collecting taxes. He implemented canals and irrigation for agriculture. Um, he bolstered the trans-Saharan trade routes. So they had a lot of gold uh, to okay. offer. And in exchange, they got salt, which was a much needed resource that they were not mm. wealthy in exactly. Um, and he, so basically the Trans-Saharan ivory, gold, ostrich feathers, and I have no idea what word I wrote there. I won't even try. Um, they would go, they would be sent north. Okay. And salt, horses, camels, cloth, and art were sent south. Hmm. Um, 
I apologize that I can't read whatever word I wrote. Um, the Songhei culture also had prisons. Um, like I said, the local justice system. The, it was Sharia law, um, which doesn't have the connotations that we think of it today. Right. But he basically had local qadis, which are judges that would enforce Sharia and they would settle minor disputes between people. Um, and the results of trials were given by town criers. So they had oh, town criers. That, that's interesting. I like that. And jurists were not a jury of your peers. They were usually from the academic community. So they had academics to as jurists. Yes. Yeah. Which, um, I mean, I, I understand that. That makes sense. Yeah. I have, I have no qualms against that. Um, but it was, it was also a religiously diverse kingdom okay. as well. The upper classes were usually Muslim, and the lower classes usually practiced traditional folk religions. Okay. Um, and basically the local, he would let local chiefs stay in their position as long as they governed their region in accordance with Songhei law. So That's this was kind of him building alliances rather than through... Uh, sieges or the things like that. people are less likely to revolt. Yeah, he's like, you can stay under me, you'll have my protection, but you have to follow my laws. Um, but, I mean, it really did turn out to be a sort of hub of culture as well. Professors got pensions. Oh, okay. Um, it, and this is, this is, you know, pre-1500. Yeah, so it's not... This is... That's not normal. <laughs> yeah. This, this is a very advanced system of governing, an advanced system of... Uh, an advanced judiciary system. Um, but essentially after him, it started to go into decline. Mm -hmm. A big reason was uh, succession issues. Um, and there was a civil war, basically, between successors. And it started... Um, to weaken the empire, um, and Morocco eventually invaded and took Gao de Gene and um, Timbuktu, and they became part of Morocco under uh, Sultan Ahmad al-Mansur of the Saudi dynasty. Okay. Um, and they eventually fell in 1591, the Songhei did. So they actually had a lot of... Um, Advancements, they looked a lot like we would imagine um, Rome would. Yeah. They had advanced trading si trade routes, trading systems. They had judiciary systems. They had taxation. Um, really, it was a very sophisticated civilization. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was very sophisticated. And then the, the way they did their laws, the way they, like, professors getting a pension, pushing yeah. for, like, the arts and, like, education, building schools. Yep. Like, yeah, that's very advanced. Yeah. I like it. So that's that's kind of the short and the long of the song, hey? All right. Guys, we were going to do six for you, but we talk a lot. We do talk a lot. So we are going to make this second, or these last two Part of an extended episode that will be on our Patreon. Yep, so make sure you become a patron of us for as little as $1 a month. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure you get the extended episodes for like $1 a month. Um, so, yeah. 
we are going to go do that. So thank you so much for listening. If um, you are not a patron, (laughs) thank you so much for listening to this. And we'll see you guys next week. Yep. Bye, guys.